Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Alarming parallels of history escalate, tweets the Anne Frank Center. Yes, it's a verified Twitter account. It really is the Anne Frank Center. Anne Frank, the young Jewish girl, who a, a teenager, a, a from preteen to teenage years, uh, hiding in a in an attic in in uh, I recall it was Amsterdam, might have been one of the other one of the other cities though, um, in the Netherlands as the Nazis took over Holland, and uh, you know left behind her famous diary and all that sort of thing. Um, so the center is like, you know, carrying on her work. Alarming parallels of history escalate. Number one, the president creates his own media. You know, clearly the parallel they're making is to Germany in the 30s, right? I mean, the Anne Frank Center is not making a parallel to, I don't know, the rise of FDR. I mean, it's, this is, okay, the president creates his own media, number one. Number two, he exploits youth at a rally. Number three, he endorses police brutality. Number four, he demonizes people who believe, look, or love differently. Number five, he strips vulnerable people of their families, jobs, and ability to live. Number six, he believes Congress should change its rules to give him more power. The Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect believes never again to any people and now. So here we have, I mean, you know, the president, he's hanging out with, with uh, Eric Prince talking about completely privatizing the Afghan war, right? Turn the whole thing over to the contractors. Hey, you know, give me a quarter million dollars per soldier. I can take care of this. The, uh, the British East India Company. I mean, there's a long history, right, of privatized war. There was the first Anglo-Mysore War in 1766, lasted for four years. The first Anglo-Marathan War, Marantha War, 1775. The second Anglo-Mysore. These are all wars between the East India Company and India. The second Anglo-Mysore War, 1780. The third was in 1789. The fourth was in 1798. The, the second Anglo-Marantha War was 1803. The Anglo-Gorka War, 1814. You know, it goes on. The Anglo-Sikh Sikh War, 1848-49. Those are just the Anglo-Indian wars. I mean, those are just the, uh, you know, the privatized wars, a very small slice of it. So, it, you know, Trump is like not exploring brand new territory, but this is, this is, um, for lack of a more appropriate word, this is evil stuff. Saying war, the thing that we all should work on avoiding, should be privatized and put into the profit system, which, by the way, this is what Dwight Eisenhower warned us about, the entire military-industrial complex is about the privatization and the profitization of war. And Eric Prince, Betsy DeVos's brother, and Donald Trump getting, getting together and saying, oh yeah, hey, great idea, let's do this, and that way the United States will no longer have dead soldiers coming home, right? We'll just have contractors who were, you know, paid $150,000, $250,000 a year for their service to our country, 
in Afghanistan coming home in body bags. But hey, they signed non-compete agreements. They signed non-disclosure agreements. They signed uh, gag orders. They can't tell anybody. So you'll never know how many dead people are coming back. Right? Unless one of, hap- one of them happens to be, you know, living on your city block and the neighbors tell you. This is bizarre, which raises a question. I mean, Trump, Trump is doing this. I've got a few other things here I want to share with you about what, you know, what Trump is up to, you know, retweeting classified information and all kinds of stuff. But what it, what it all comes down to is one essential question. And it's an essential question that is being asked today in an op-ed in the, uh, in the Washington Post by Richard Cohen. And the question that Richard Cohen asks is, who's worse for the nation? Donald Trump or Mike Pence? Now, think about that for a minute. How do, we, how do you make this, you know, the, the, the classic decision making, you know, you take a, 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 a legal pad and run a line down the middle. And on the left side, you say, you know, for and on the right side, you say against or vice versa. And then, you know, what Trump or Pence, right? Which is worse for the nation? Up until about a month ago, I was firmly of the opinion that Pence was worse for the nation because Trump is not an ideologue. And although he's beholden to a few billionaires, uh, Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca, Shelley Adelson, he's got a few billionaires who've helped him out. And of course, the Koch brothers and the Koch network, had they not worked really, really hard to elect Republicans all across the country, wouldn't have been doing the get out the vote efforts that led to Donald Trump being in the White House. So, you know, he owes it to them, but he doesn't owe it to them the way Mike Pence does. Mike Pence owes basically his entire political career to petrobillionaire oligarchs. Donald Trump doesn't. So up until a month or so ago, I was personally of the opinion that having Mike Pence as president would be a worse thing than having Donald Trump as president. Because Mike Pence is, you know, he has been a political creature his entire life, other than a few years when he was a talk show host. Mike Pence is all about being the elected toady for for very rich people. That's what he's done his entire life. That and and being the elected toady for the American Taliban, the the, the so-called Christian Taliban, um, you know the, the 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 Falwell crowd and the you know these uh, you know hardcore right wing uh, take millions and millions of federal dollars guys who then you know are all upset about the federal government, et cetera. But now I'm changing my mind very reluctantly. My, my thought was Trump is so incompetent that he can't really get us into too much trouble. And Pence is very competent, and so he could get a lot done very quickly and really damage the United States, you know, using his libertarian ideology that he, that he is, you know, dancing to the tune of the billionaires on behalf of. But now, now that, now that I've watched Trump interact with North Korea, with Russia, with Saudi Arabia, with Israel, with uh, Germany, with Mexico, with the Philippines, Duterte, in every case, Trump is making the worst kind of rookie mistakes. He's, he's, he's just like, he could, he could lead us into World War III. He could tweet us into World War III. And, and it's like he doesn't even care. I mean, this morning, uh, Nikki Haley was on Fox and Friends, and Fox News had uh, published a leak something Donald Trump wants to put journalists in jail for. Fox News had published a leak which included classified information. They asked Nikki Haley about it. And Nikki Haley said, you know, we shouldn't be talking about that. That's classified. So Fox and Friends tweets it. And guess who retweets it? Donald Trump. In essence, verifying to the world this classified information. Now, that's not only wrong, it's probably illegal on the part of both Fox and Trump. But whether it's wrong or illegal, it's dangerous. This is a, I, you know, think back to World War One. I. I, you know, I realize none of us were alive for World War One, right? Anybody who was around 
at the beginning of World War I, who, who, you know, who, who saw the, the buildup to it in the late 1910s and the early 19-teens, um, you know, tensions around the world, nations coming, coming to uh, these, all these bilateral agreements to, to, you know, if you get attacked, then I'm attacked, then I'll fight on your behalf and all this kind of stuff, that everybody thought would ensure peace in the world actually guaranteed a world war as the result of Archduke Ferdinand being assassinated in Sarajevo. And nobody was expecting this. In fact, to this day, nobody can give you a really good reason why World War I was fought other than the fact that once it started, it spiraled out of control because of all these bilateral agreements, these mutual defense agreements. Well, those agreements are in places now, you know, times 10. And so if, for example, Donald Trump attacks North Korea preemptively, North Korea reaches out to China and says, we have a mutual defense agreement. China attacks the United States. We're now at war with China. China goes to Russia and says, hey, you know, you're on a, I, I think they have a mutual defense agreement. If not there, there's others. Um, you know, uh, India and Pakistan get into it. India comes to us. Pakistan goes to Russia or China. I mean, it's just uh, pretty soon you've got the whole damn war at, world at war. Because Trump is so incompetent. So I'm, I have come to the conclusion that, you know, I, 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 just up until the last couple of weeks, I'd been kind of uh, cautious about calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump. I, you know, I figured, you know, just let the process take its course. Bob Mueller is going to find out if he's done anything wrong. And if he has, they're going to nail him for it. You know, what's the old saying? A, a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Well, Donald Trump is about as close to a ham sandwich as you can get these days. <laughs> and I, I just, you know, it's on white bread at that, right? And, and so I've come to the conclusion personally that Pence is probably a safer bet for the United States than Donald Trump. And, and that, that frankly troubles me. But... You know, and, and looking at it from a partisan point of view, I think Pence is also weaker electorally. I think Trump has built a base of people who don't trust either party, frankly. And it's a not inconsequential base. So what are your thoughts on this? In today's Washington Post, who's worse for the nation, Donald Trump or Mike Pence? Uh, he, he points out that, you know, when the New York Times reported that Mike Pence is already running for president, he's got a super PAC, he's got staff. He's visiting Iowa. He's doing all the things that Republicans do. Uh, for that matter, most Democrats do when they're when they're intending to run for president. And Pence goes, oh, that's reprehensible. That's a disgraceful. That's offensive. Really? It's offensive to run for president. It's disgraceful to report that you're running for president. Really, what he's saying is, Donald, don't pay attention to The New York Times. Don't read that article, please. Don't get upset with me, Donald. Please don't get upset with me. You know, don't don't send me out there with Michael Flynn, please. That's what's going on. But as Richard Cohen says, Pence is not a man to look a gift horse in the mouth. He's got, he's got his eye on 2020. And uh, he adds Trump is a menace. He's ignorant. He's chaotic. His saving grace, however, is his incompetence. And see, that was where I was at uh, a month or so ago before North Korea started firing off missiles with some uh, scary precision and, ac and, and ability. Cohen says, on the other hand, his most significant and appalling contribution has been to normalize lying as an ordinary tool of the presidency. He's talking about Donald Trump, obviously. Although Mike Pence lies a lot, too. Mike Pence claims, you know, Mike Pence, it was Mike Pence who wrote op-eds and told us back when in, in around 2000, when he was working for the tobacco industry, that you can't get lung cancer from smoking or that smoking doesn't cause directly cause lung cancer. It was, it, it was Mike Pence who, you know, the whole periods for Pence thing in Indiana. If you have a, a miscarriage, uh, you have to report yourself to the police and you have to pay 5000 bucks for a funeral. It was, it, I mean, it was Mike Pence who, in 2002, went to the floor of the House of Representatives to say that evolution was merely a theory. Right. You know, uh, and, then, and then Mike Pence says... And this is, I think this is the most important thing about Cohen's critique of Pence, that he's an insanely, shockingly, absolutely 
hypocrite. In fact, Cohen says Pence is all faith and no morality. In other words, he goes out there and he says, I'm a super Christian, right? We got to stop these women from having abortions. I'm a super Christian. And, uh, and as a super Christian, I'm not going to say anything about our president trashing brown people and Mexicans and Muslims and the disabled. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about Donald Trump making fun of disabled reporters or talking about grabbing women by the crotch. I'm not going to say, well, I, maybe he said something about that once. But basically, Mike Pence has been an absolute toady for Donald Trump. And he's trying to continue that process. Do we really, I mean, you know, here we've got a choice. You can have in the White House uh, a New York real estate developer who may have connections to the mob, domestic or foreign, and who, who it seems, literally cannot go through an entire day without telling a lie typically a self-serving lie. Do you want that guy in the White House who doesn't know what's going on, who the Joint Chiefs, the only way, and the intelligence services, the only way they can get him to read a memo is to make sure that his name is in every paragraph. Do you want that guy in the White House? Or do you want the Christian Taliban in the White House who wants to outlaw abortion all across the United States, who wants to outlaw much birth control, who wants to force women when they have miscarriages to report themselves to their local police department? who says evolution isn't real, that, that we should look to the Bible for our science, and who claims that climate change doesn't exist. Well, they're both claiming that, but you know, Trump at least is a little more cynical about it. Who's worse, in your opinion? Welcome back, Tom Harmon here with you, and the question before us, wh who is worse for the United States, Trump or Pence? I mean, do we want a Christian Taliban running this country or do we want a corrupt real estate executive running this country? An oligarch. Pence has spent his life shilling on behalf of the oligarchs. Trump is an oligarch. Which is worse? I can build a case in either direction, but the propensity of Trump to not pay attention to details like, uh, you know, the mental state of Kim Jong-un when he, when he just, you know, he, I just, when he bumbles into stuff, I just have this bull in a china shop sense about Trump that scares the heck out of me. Um, and that's, that's the basis of my concern that, that if Bob Mueller finds anything, whether it has to do with Russia or whether it has to do with oligarchs, American, Russian, Ukrainian, God only knows, you know, uh, I, odds are fairly high in, in my personal opinion, just from the stuff that I've been reading in the press, that the Trump organization has, at the very least, been involved in money laundering operations, perhaps unwittingly, uh, but uh, unlikely, but, you know, who knows? But if Miller can find something that can be the basis for an impeachment investigate for an impeachment uh, action in the House of Representatives and a trial in the Senate, and we end up with President Pence, or Trump resigns, which is what I've been predicting, I've been predicting for some time now that that before the end of this year, or the middle of next year at the very latest, that there will be indictments of Manafort and Flynn and probably Don Jr. and maybe Corey Lewandowski and maybe a few of the other people close to Trump. And when those indictments happen, Trump will pardon them all and then he will resign to avoid being attacked himself. And then Mike Pence will come in and be president. The first thing he'll do, just like Jerry Ford did with Richard Nixon, is pardon Donald Trump. And that'll be the end of that, and we'll never hear anything more about it. That's my prediction. But if that plays out, is that good for the country or bad for the country? You know, I was kind of gleeful about, gleeful is too strong, way too strong. But I was at least uh, somewhat relieved at the incompetence of Donald Trump initially. Now I'm terrified by it. Adam in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, Adam, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, how's it going? Good. Trump or Pence? God. Worse is definitely Trump. Um, yeah, Chris. Uh, reasons, Chris was sitting here with me. He says this is like asking if you want to be kicked between the legs or if you want to have your hair set on fire. What's your choice? <laughs> well, for for one thing, um, we have only a certain amount of fear we we can instill into Pence because a lot of the things he talks about, as far as religion, legislation can't be written based off religion. So I mean, we can kind of put some some of the fears to rest. But with Trump, 
we've got a bigger problem, and that is he's propagandized a new group of, well, not even a new group of people, just this huge group of people through that Cambridge Analytical mm. deal that he did to, to run his uh, campaign. Yeah, this is, this is the uh, micro-targeting database thing that company that uh, Robert Mercer owns or started or something, and uh, that, that micro-targeted people during the election, particularly through Facebook for advertising, and, and is Social also yeah. also micro-targeting voters, as I recall. Yep. In fact, so they, they, they took that over to Britain people. for Brexit, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so therefore, now, the bottom line, Adam, who is, do you think is more dangerous for the United States, Trump or Pence? Definitely, it'd have to be Trump, because everybody is used to the left and right, you know, the religious, you know, on the right. Just You know what I mean. Everyone's yeah. used to our cat and dog fight. But when it comes to this new takeover of the social media, this is completely different. Yeah. The old cat and dog fight can't, can't even compare. Yeah, it's sort of like when when uh, I, I, I'm increasingly disliking Hitler analogies, but I maybe Mussolini. I don't know that much about the rise of Mussolini in Italy, but you know when Hitler came along, he was perceived as neither the left nor right initially, but rather as this brand new populist phenomena, and that's kind of how how Trump has been pitched to us. And yeah, I get it. Okay, Adam, thank you for the call. Thanks for sharing your opinion, John in Philadelphia. Hey, John, your thoughts? Um, that definitely is a tough choice between. Trump and Pence, I really think it's time to address more of the um, potential constitutional crisis with the failed balance of powers. How so? Specifically with declaring war. Ah, well, that's, that's war been going on. From Congress. That, that's been going on since the 50s. And it's, I think it's time to really talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought we were going to have a conversation about it after Vietnam, you know, and a war, another war that was literally never declared. We have not declared a war since World War II. And, and from, I'm, I'm younger than you. I thought it would happen with Clinton with the actions that happened in 98. Yeah, in Bosnia and Serbia? Yes. I, well, not just Bosnia, Serbia, um, also Afghanistan and uh, Africa. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the first Gulf War you know, the, under Bush, the elder. Well, none of these go through Congress. Or if they do, they do in ways that are uh, largely cosmetic, you know, authorization to use military force. Excuse me, how is that not a declaration of war? Um, you know, and, and declaration of war has a much higher threshold. But yeah, I, I think that that's so. So what is that? They're on the line for that. No, I like, get that. I can go to my congressman and say, hey, we should not be doing this. And, re, you know, we get, we get a chance every two years to make sure that the outcome of that doesn't put us in the perpetual war. Right. But then, you know, pretty much the only people you're voting for are Barbara Lee and Bernie Sanders. I mean, you know, there, there, there are not a lot of members of Congress who are willing to stand up to the Pentagon. Excuse me. I completely agree with you on, you know, Congress needs to be declaring wars. Um, I get all that. So then the question becomes, what does that have to do with who's worse for America, Trump or Pence? Because both of them, in my opinion, will exploit foreign wars for their own political advantage. They will, but if they have to put it through Congress, we, we, it's not a knee-jerk reaction. I see. So you're calling, you're calling for the checks and balances to be restored. I get it, and I totally agree. I don't think it's going to happen, but I, I totally agree. John, excellent point. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, it's odd that you mentioned this this morning, because about two, three weeks ago, I came to the same conclusion and while I've never been a fan of Pence, and I'm certainly, as a Bernie supporter, not on the hard right. However, uh, I find that the longer this uh, administration goes on, the more unhinged this man is becoming. And I'm starting to be very afraid of him. Yeah. And I'm not afraid of Pence. I mean, I think Pence is sane. Yes. I may not like his policy. Yeah, he's amoral. And, and he's a he's a he's the you know, you look up a politician weasel in the dictionary and there's a picture of Mike Pence. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he's nuts. Trump seems no. to be nuts. No, he's not nuts. And, and and all politicians lie. And Pence is very good at that. But he's not a pathological liar. And I don't believe he has a pathological personality as Trump does. I agree. And I think that Trump is extremely dangerous for this country. And at least Pence has. Uh, there's something calming about his presence. 
whether yeah. you like him or not. He's calm. He seems to know what he's doing. I've heard him speak at the NATO summit, and he did a very good job, you know. So I don't think he would insult all of our allies and get us into a World War III. I really don't. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Um, yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Carol, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your opinion. Bob in Roanoke, Virginia. Hey, Bob, your thoughts? Tom, how you doing? Good. I think Trump is really dangerous. Up until recently, up until this morning, I actually was thinking that uh, I, I did not care for Pence, and I was afraid of Pence. But I think your last caller really hit it. You know, he's he's Trump is very very dangerous. I just finished reading this Craig Unger's article in the New Republic. Have you read that? Uh, what's the title? Trump. It's uh, Trump's Russian laundromat. On the cover, it says "Married to the Mob." There's a picture of Trump with a Russian guy. Oh yeah, I saw. You know, I read. I read a part of that uh, yesterday afternoon that, over on the New Republic website. That article. That article is is frightening in a lot of ways because Trump is really entangled with these guys. I mean, there's so many different. They they. Yeah. They outlined so many different things that have happened and so many different characters that Craig Unger introduces that Trump is just very, very involved with. I mean, it's it's yeah, and it's not even it wasn't even like he's promoting a foreign government. It's like he's in bed with foreign mobsters. Exactly. He's in bed. He's in bed with the Russian mob and they have they, they've got a lot of article, a lot of documentation, a lot of pictures um, the pictures are, are as scary as the article. Well, and you can go back and look at, you know, I mean, the, the reporting done in New York City in the 80s and 90s about Trump and the Gotti family or Trump and the, and the New York mob. And, you know, why did they make Trump Tower with concrete? Well, because apparently big mob boss was a concrete man. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how much of this has ever been proven as opposed to alleged. I don't know how much of it is real, frankly. But... Uh, I suspect that as Bob Mueller digs into this stuff, not only is he going to find connections between Trump and foreign mobsters, but he's going to probably find connections between Trump and American mobsters as well. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, this is... it certainly is quite possible. And the, and the Russians are very devious. You know, they have this term, useful idiot. And uh, I, I think he has played right into their hands for that. I mean, Putin and, and that yeah. crew... Yeah, no, I, I get it. And the and the billionaires have their useful idiots, too, in the case of Mike Pence. But it's like, what do you do? It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Jane Mayer's new book, Dark Money, History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. And it's, by the way, just an extraordinary, astonishing book. This is from Chapter 19, sort of the uh, introductory chapter. And she's talking about one of the Koch summits where all these billionaires get together and plan strategy and throw money into the pot and that kind of thing. The highlight of the Koch summit in 2009 was, which, by the way, was the year uh, President Obama's first year in office, was an uninhibited debate about what conservatives should do next in the face of their electoral defeat. As the donors and other guests dined in the hotel's banquet room, like Roman senators attending a gladiator duel in the forum, they watched a passionate argument unfold that encapsulated the stark choice ahead. Sitting on one side of the stage facing the participants was the Texas Senator John Cornyn, the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee and former justice on the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, Poised on the other side of the moderator was the South Carolina Senator Jim DeMint, a conservative provocateur who defined the outermost anti-establishment fringe of the Republican Party and who, in the words of one admirer, was the leader of the Huns. 57 at the time, he was five months older than Cornyn, but his dark hair, lean build, and more casual aw shuck style made him appear years younger. Before his election to Congress, DeMint had run an advertising agency in South Carolina. He understood how to sell, and what he was pitching that night was an approach to politics that, according to the historian Sean Willits, would have been recognizable to DeMint's forebearers in the Palmetto State as akin to the radical nullification of federal power advocated in the 1860. 1860s by the Confederate secessionist John C. Calhoun. The two Republican senators had been at loggerheads for some time. That night, they gave opposing opening statements. Cornyn spoke in favor of the Republican Party fighting its way back to victory by broadening its appeal to a wider swath of voters, including moderates. In contrast, DeMint portrayed compromise as surrender, 
He had little patience for the slow-moving process of constitutional government. He regarded many of his Senate colleagues as timid and self-serving. The federal government posed such a dire threat to the dynamism of the American economy, in his view, that anything less than all-out war on regulations and spending was a cop-out. DeMint was the face of a new kind of extremism, and he spoke that evening in favor of purifying rather than diluting the Republican Party. He agreed that he argued that he would have he would rather have 30 Republicans who believed in something than a majority who believed in nothing. A line that was a mantra for him and that brought cheers and applause from the gathered onlookers. Rather than compromising their principles and working with the new administration, the Obama administration, DeMint argued, Republicans needed to take a firm stand against Obama, waging a campaign of massive resistance and obstruction, regardless of the 2008 election outcome. Uh, and then they go through a discussion about how they, they debated, you know, the TARP and, and uh, DeMint was, had voted against it, Cornyn for it, and, you know, some of the just issue things. Sitting silently at a table in the front row through all this were Charles Koch and his wife, Liz. No one came to Cornyn's defense. It was widely assumed that the Kochs, as hardcore free market enthusiasts, had opposed the huge government bailout to the private sector. Later, many reporters assumed this, too, ascribing the Kochs' opposition to Obama as stemming from a principled disagreement over issues such as the TARP bailouts. But none of this was true. Had people checked the records, they would have found it quite revealing. At first, the Kochs' political organization, Americans for Prosperity, had in fact taken what appeared to be a principled libertarian position against the bank bailouts. But the organization quickly and quietly reversed sides when the bottom began to fall out of the stock market, threatening the Kochs' own vast investment portfolio. The market had begun to collapse on Monday, September 29, when, in the face of heavy opposition from conservatives, the House unexpectedly failed to pass a federal rescue plan. By the end of the day, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had fallen 777 points, losing 6.9% of its value. It was the stock market's largest one-day drop ever. Although some conservative groups and politicians, such as DeMint, still opposed the bailout, the market panic was enough to change many minds. And among those who flipped during the next 48 hours were the Kochs. But if the Kochs' personal interest in protecting their portfolio had trumped their free market principles, they weren't about to mention it in front of a group full of libertarians whose cash they wanted to combat Obama. Instead, the sentiment among the donors as the first Koch seminar of the Obama era came to an end was, as one witness put it, like a bunch of gorillas beating their chests. After hearing both sides out, the assembled guests chose the path of extremism. The Kochs had already concluded that they would need to resort to extraordinary political measures to achieve their goals. A few days before the January 2009 donor seminar, Charles and David Koch had primarily weighed their options, privately weighed their options, weighted their options with their longtime political strategist in a meeting inside the Black Glass Fortress that served, served as Koch Industries' corporate headquarters in Wichita, Kansas. Advisors to Obama later acknowledged he had no inkling of what he was up against. He had campaigned as a partisan politician who had idealistically taken issue with those who liked to slice and dice our country into red and blue states. His vision, like his own racial blend and geographic heredity, was one of reconciliation, not division. The sentiment was laudable, but alas, wishful thinking. The newly sworn-in president looked down at the ground directly beneath his polished shoes. He would have been wise to take note. The red and blue carpet on which he, had stand, he was standed had been manufactured by a subsidiary of Coke, Poly, uh, Coke Industries. The book Dark Money by Jane Mayer. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And on the line with us is Forrest Wilder. He's the editor of the Texas Observer, uh, a newspaper in Texas. The, the Tex TexasObserver.org is the website. You can tweet him at Forrest Four Trees, F-O-R-R-E-S-T, number four, T-R-E-E-S, Forrest Four Trees, or at Texas Observer. And uh, Forrest, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, do you want to quickly tell us uh, about the Texas Observer, what it is and what you do? Well, we're a nonprofit, public interest, uh, progressive uh, news magazine and website in, in Texas, and we've been around since 1954. Uh, uh, Molly Ivins was our editor at one point, and Jim Hightower, and lots of other great folks have come through doing uh, journalism in the strangest state in the Union, as we call it. There you go. Okay. So a, a, a group of libertarians decided to create the freest little city in Texas. Uh, the, the title of the article in, your, in, your, uh, in the Texas Observer that 
I believe you wrote, right? Um, uh, I was the editor on it. Yeah, the editor. Okay, you edited. So tell us, tell us about this town. Tell us about this experiment in libertarianism that happened down in Texas. Well, it's a little town south of San Antonio called Von Orme, um, and it was unincorporated for its, its whole existence until about 2008, when people in town were getting nervous about San Antonio, San Antonio encroaching. Um, so they started considering whether to incorporate, and the town was pretty divided about it because they, they were sort of resistant to having to deal with some of the things that come with being municipal government. Uh, but there was a guy in town by the name of Art Martinez Navarra, who was a young law student, uh, who suggested that they form something called a Liberty City. Um, and this is basically the idea of creating a low-services, low-tax, kind of you know, a slimmed-down version of municipal government to try to have the best of both worlds, to have some services, but also avoid um, some of what they viewed as, some people in town viewed as the excesses of, of city government like they might have if they were became part of San Antonio. So they went ahead and incorporated, and they elected uh, Art Martinez Navarra as mayor and, and the city council, and, uh, and basically uh, w- went to work setting up this Liberty City and then really over the next eight years, eight or nine years, this thing unfolded or, uh, I guess, deteriorated might be the better uh, word to use. And as really just, just kind of was kind of a disaster. Uh, city council members were um, arrested for violating the Meetings Act, and they eliminated a property tax, which left them without the ability to pay for some essential services. The police department collapsed, the fire department collapsed, and basically the, uh, the, the Liberty City experiment, as uh, Art Martinez Devara uh, called it, um, uh, ended up being uh, uh, kind of running amok. So, how do the libertarians explain this? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, he's he's uh, he's. I've heard him speak a few times, and he, they don't really have. It's very little to say about what went wrong. He basically just kind of describes it as a quote, a unique experiment in democracy, and kind of talks about some of the, some of the successes. And I think. Um, to the extent that it addresses um, uh, where things went, the reasons why things went haywire kind of uh, points uh, points fingers at uh, some of his political uh, opponents. Hmm. Interesting. I, it's it's uh, you know there, there there have do you know of any successful libertarian experiments anywhere in the world? I do not know of any. You know, it, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, with these, these articles uh, kind of pop up from time to time because it, it seems like this has been tried a number of times. I mean, there was the whole kind of floating cities thing. I'm not sure how far they got with that. There was yeah. the, everyone moved into New Hampshire deal. Um, right, they're going to do it with Belle Isle off Detroit. Yeah, so, so they, they don't tend to, to, to go too well. I think there's some utopian thinking that, that uh, underlies uh, some of the ideas. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it, it, it really is. I mean, the whole libertarian idea is is, in my opinion, is contrary to human nature because it assumes that, as Maggie Thatcher said, there is no such thing as society that's only a collection of individuals, when in fact we are social animals. I mean, we're mammals. You know, we're we're designed we're designed to be interdependent with each other. And and uh, you know, the the libertarian idea is that, like you know, the the son and daughter who who were the heroes of uh, Atlas Shrugged, that if you inherit a railroad from your daddy, then you become the master of the universe, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. <sighs> Amazing. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that the libertarians there are at least acknowledging that, that you know, maybe this is not a, a political theology that is practical. Uh, or are they, are, are they not acknowledging? I mean, it's like Sam Brownback, right? Sam Brownback was, uh, you know, tried a semi-libertarian idea. He, he said, let's try Reaganomics here in Kansas. Uh, we will be doing the demonstration project for the country. Everybody will see how successful we are. He cut taxes radically, including presumably taxes on the Koch brothers, or at least the one who lives there in Kansas. I think it's Charles. And uh, it was an absolute unmitigated disaster for Kansas. So bad that uh, Donald Trump had to bail him out by giving them an, uh, the, the post of ambassador to the world's religions. It's like, you know, right, right, uh, right. talk about a, uh, you know, a low place to, to, to be caught as you're falling. Um, well, go ahead. Well, I will say that, um, so the, the, the Liberty City model uh, is not actually uh, in statute. So this guy, the founder of the town, the mayor, became a chief of staff to a libertarian-leaning senator. And as chief of staff, he and you know his boss proposed legislation to kind of 
make it part of just a formal type of uh, Texas city government, and the bill went nowhere. Um, uh, I think there's not a, a huge appetite for it, at least at the uh, at the city level, for doing this, replicating this in other places. Right. So he, he was he was attaching himself to a state senator. So it, yeah. Just just as an observer, it seems to me that the cities, and for that matter, even the small towns in the United States, that are the most progressive, that have you know, strong infrastructure that have, you know, that, that tax themselves uh, enough that they can actually provide high quality education, that they can keep the streets, uh, you know, uh, pothole free, that, that they, that they develop the advanced kinds of infrastructure, you know, new alternative energy sources, a high speed broadband, things like that. Chattanooga, a great example of this, you know, uh, uh, civic broadband, that those, those are the cities that are really booming, that they're really bringing people in, and the cities that are going the, the more of a libertarian slash Republican route of being extremely minimalist in what they're offering are the cities that are dying. Is that, does that, does your experience, I mean, you live in Texas, so there's a lot of towns in Texas. Does, does your observation comport with mine? Well, I mean, pretty much every major city in Texas is, is run by, you know, um, they're nonpartisan, but they're basically Democrats and, and progressives. And I would say the number one uh, political theme of the moment in our in the state government and the legislature is a, the Republican legislature and governor attacking cities. In fact, we had a lieutenant governor just over the weekend say that all of the country's problems, all of Texas's problems, are concentrated in cities because they're run by you know run by Democrats. Um, peculiar thing to say when you know eighty percent of the state is actually Texas is, is urban um, and mostly you know, economic activity and growth and. People moving here, um, or moving to the cities, um, rural Texas, in many cases, is, is kind of stagnant uh, and troubled at the moment. Did you just say so, that eighty percent of the population of Texas lives in cities? Lives in urban areas, so basically metro areas. Wow, that's correct. That's that that yeah. kind of uh, runs contrary to the stereotype of Texas as as being rural and and um, you know somewhat reactionary. Well, we have we have the largest rural population of any state, so it is big. But it's a huge state, it's 28 million people, and you know most people live in Austin, San Antonio, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, the, the metro areas, uh, you know, surrounding suburbs. Um, right. So Texas is an urban state, absolutely. Right. Fascinating stuff. And and finally, we're talking with Forrest Wilder, the editor of the Texas Observer, the website TexasObserver.org. You can tweet him at Forrest Fortrees. And uh, fi- finally, Forrest, any any word about these libertarians who screwed up the Liberty City thing, trying to do it again? Well, I believe there uh, there's an estimate of ten Liberty Liberty cities total in Texas. So oh there has been some replication, but I don't think that it's really caught fire beyond uh, just a handful of really small towns. Um, and like I said, efforts to to kind of expand it um, by making it uh, a formal type of uh, city government in Texas, they haven't really that hasn't really gone anywhere. So I don't I don't think there's a huge appetite for it. And perhaps this is a sort of object lesson in what can go wrong with happening on army. Yeah, you think? Forrest Wilder, the editor of the Texas Observer. Thanks for the, thanks for uh, sharing with us, Forrest. Great yeah, talking. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, TexasObserver.org. You can read the story over there. Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The title of the story is The Rise and Fall of the Freest Little City in Texas. And you can find it over at TexasObserver.org. You can tweet Forrest at Forrest number four trees. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. If there is an upside to this whole Sturm and Drang around uh, the possibility that Russia has, quote, hacked our election. And I think that there are considerable upsides to it, actually. I think the principal one is that it is allowing us to have a conversation that, frankly, the Democratic Party has not allowed us to have since 2002, or arguably even before that. But it was, you'll recall in 2000, when the election in Florida went south, the real reason why George W. Bush got within 500 votes of Al Gore to win when all the exit polls and everything else showed that Al Gore was easily going to win Florida. The real reason that George W. Bush got you know, close enough that the Supreme Court could take the presidency away from, from, from Al Gore was that 
Jeb Bush, his brother, had ordered Catherine Harris, the Secretary of State, to remove something on the order of 54,000 African-Americans, mostly African-Americans, from the voting rolls in that state. Now, this is a process that is continuing across the United States on a regular basis. And this is, this is like, you know, seriously dangerous stuff. The, 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 the way that, uh, you know, our, our election has been hacked. There's a piece in today's National Post by Sari Horowitz, or Horowitz. Uh, the, head, the headline pretty much says it all. Justice Department reverses position to support Ohio purging inactive voters in high-profile cases. The state of Ohio under John Kasich wants to throw a whole bunch of people off the voting rolls. Why? Because they mailed letters to them and those people didn't send the letters back. Now, this used to be called caging and the Republican Party used to operate under a court order forbidding them from doing it. Because the fact of the matter is most of us, if we get something in the mail that looks like it's, you know, junk mail, even from the government, we don't respond to it. And in particular, minority populations, people who are outside the United States, that would be active duty military mostly. Very poor people, particularly if they're, if they're using, you know, a collective mailbox or a post office box. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people don't necessarily always get their mail, or when they do, they're not inclined to respond to it. So the Republicans know that caging, this, this practice of mailing out things to registered voters, particularly in poor areas, particularly in black areas, particularly in urban areas, particularly elderly people, and particularly students, they know that mailing these things out to these people, you know, they're going to get a high rate of returns as undeliverable. It doesn't mean the people are dead. It doesn't mean that they've moved. It means that, you know, it's just the nature of their lives, right? It's just like people who live in cities where they've never had to own a car are less likely to have a driver's license. So here you've got Ohio trying to purge the vote. And now, and the Justice Department under Obama, the Obama Justice Department have been saying, no, you may not purge your voter rolls, you know, at least on this basis. You have to demonstrate that these people have left the state, not guess that they've left the state because they're not replying to your junk mail. But now the official Trump Justice Department position is, uh, you know, go ahead. Ohio, John Kasich, yeah, throw them off the voting rolls. Especially in those big cities where you've got a lot of black people, throw them off the voting rolls. Come on, do it. This is, I mean, this has been the Republican position since the 50s. And they're going to continue with this. But it goes beyond that. What we saw in 2002, as a result of the, the uh, where I started this whole riff was in 2000, right, with the election, uh, the selection of George W. Bush by the Supreme Court, which should have been the election of Al Gore. Because the, the, there was a wide variety of different voting systems in the state of Florida in the 2000 election, including the, the famous, you know, butterfly chads and, you know, or butterfly ballots that had chads that you couldn't push all the way through and all this. You know, there, there were some, some systems that didn't work all that well or that were terribly confusing. You had thousands and thousands of people in, in elderly Jewish communities who, uh, you know, many of them Holocaust survivors who voted for Pat Buchanan, who's about as close to a Nazi as you can get in American politics and get on the ballot for president, um, you know, told us that the system was either intentionally designed to mislead people and be confusing, which Republicans love, or just didn't work. So in 2002, we got this thing called the Help America Vote Act, which allocated around five or six billion federal dollars to give to the states to buy voting machines from a, a small handful of companies that were connected to Republican politics. So let's give billions of dollars to Diebold and ES&S and, and all these other companies. And now the question is, you know, what's, what's, what's going on with these voting machines? Because what we started seeing after 2002, and we started seeing it right away, by the way, was something called redshift. In states using voting machines, particularly those states using exclusively voting machines with no paper trail, like Georgia, you started seeing, while the exit polls were saying Democrats were winning, the electronic voting machines were saying, no, Republicans are winning. In other words, the vote was shifting to the red, into the, into the, into the Republican side. And a lot of us, I mean, I started writing about this in 2002. 
And you can find the articles I was writing for Common Dreams back at the time. And you can find those articles online. And I was not alone in this. Bev Harris had started Black Box Voting. Brad Friedman doing brilliant work at bradblog.com, as he's been doing for years and years all over this stuff. Greg Palast writing about it. You can read it at gregpalast.com. Greg Palast writing books about it, doing it. He, I mean, Greg Palast was the one who broke open the story when he was reporting for the BBC about how the, uh, about how the, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the Jeb Bush administration had thrown 54,000 African-Americans out the voting rolls in Florida. He was the guy who broke that story. The whole world knew it. The BBC reported on it quite thoroughly. That report was never shown in the United States. No American media would pick it up after the election. Which is mind-boggling. We're not even going to quote the BBC. But now it gets even worse. Now you've got a group of computer scientists who sat down and testified before Congress and in other places. This is uh, some footage from C-SPAN talking about our vote and, and you know what happened with the vote and how the vote how the vote went down and all this sort of thing. Here's the, uh, here's the first clip. I'm, uh, uh, while he's talking, I'll find the name of the guy. It's not, it's not on my one sheet. We'll be right back. Here, it, here he is. I know America's voting machines are vulnerable because my colleagues and I have hacked them repeatedly. We've created attacks that can spread from machine to machine like a computer virus. Some say the fact that voting machines aren't directly connected to the internet makes them secure, but unfortunately, this is not true. Before every election, they need to be programmed with races and candidates. If Russia infiltrated these election management computers, it could have spread a vote-stealing attack to vast numbers of machines. I know America's voting machines are vulnerable because my... This was J. Alex Halderman um, uh, and just started to repeat itself, I think, there. And, and this is where I started this thing out by saying, you know, if, if, there's any, if there's an upside to the whole Russia hysteria right now, it is this. It's that now we can have a conversation about how insecure our voting system is. Because I remember back in 2004 or six, I think it was 2006, there was a group of us, uh, talk show hosts, who came to Washington, D.C. to meet with some Democratic members of the House and Senate uh, in a little forum where we were just talking about the issues of the day and, you know, how do we get stuff out there and whatnot. And uh, a fairly high-profile Democrat said to us, said to me anyway, I think said in public to the whole group, the Democrats don't want to talk about the, the insecurity of electronic voting because it'll cause people to think that their vote might not be counted and therefore they won't show up to vote. And so the Democrats have been playing head in the sand here ever since 2002. And you talk to Democratic politicians and they will tell you off the record that they know that they've got a big problem. But they just haven't known what to do about it. How do you take this on without saying, hey, the Republicans are trying to steal the election? Keep in mind, Lyndon Johnson refused to out Richard Nixon's treason because he was afraid it would destroy the, the confidence of the American people in our voting system, in our electoral system. He thought it was best for the nation to go to his grave knowing that Richard Nixon had committed treason by collaborating with South Vietnam to postpone the peace process so that in 1968, Hubert Humphrey would not become president of the United States. The Democratic Party has a long tradition of being afraid and it's not just the, you know, of being afraid to call out the Republican crimes. The same thing in, in, uh, in, the, in the 80s when Congress started investigating Iran-Contra. And they, they, they modified the law specifically to say you cannot look at anything that happened before 1981. In other words, you can't look at Reagan cutting a deal with the Iranians. So anyhow, that was the first clip. Here's the, here's the, the second part of this, um, uh, of this computer scientist. His name is J. Alex Halderman. Uh, he's the computer science, a professor of computer science and the director of the Center for Computer Security. Here he is. We must start preparing now. First, we need to upgrade obsolete and vulnerable voting machines, such as paperless touchscreens, and replace them with optical scanners that count paper ballots. Second, we need to use the paper to make sure that the computer results are right. This is a common sense quality control. Lastly, we need to harden our systems against sabotage and raise the bar for attacks of all sorts by conducting comprehensive threat assessments and applying cybersecurity best practices to the design of voting equipment and the management of elections. But if we fail to act, 
I think it's only a matter of time until a major election is disrupted or stolen in a cyber attack. See, and I'm, I'm saying that that's been going on since 2000, 2002, in a big way since 2004. And but the Democratic Party has been afraid to talk about it because they don't want to call out the Republicans. And the Republicans, of course, just, you know, make fun whenever the Democrats do talk about it. So now you can blame it on the Russians. Right. It's like, hey, what the hell? You know, it allows us at least to have that conversation. So I think that that's sort of the the upside of all of this. And and. Is it time now? Is it is it even possible that we can have a national conversation about the fact that what Thomas Paine characterized as the beating heart of democracy, the vote, was privatized in 2002, was turned over to for-profit corporations aligned with both philosophically and financially the Republican Party, and that those for-profit corporations and their voting machines have been delivering Republican politicians to us with some regularity ever since. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Jeremiah in Coalport, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jeremiah, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, you want to know what to do about voting? Yeah. Um, I think we need to undo the nonpartisan commission in California that draws the congressional districts Mm -hmm. um, and gerrymander it to the advantage of the Democrats because that's the biggest electoral prize, and um, we need to balance out the gerrymandering in other states. Um, California already is largely Democratic. I mean, there's a few Republican members of Congress from California, but the vast majority of their congressional delegation is Democratic. The uh, state assembly and the state senate are both controlled by Democrats. The governorship is, in a, you know, Jerry Brown is a well, Democrat. Well, yes, but if we gerrymandered it more, I mean, I think we, you know, we could possibly pick up more seats. But also there's um, a, a case, be uh, in Texas um, regarding gerrymandering, and I think if uh, you have gerrymandering in California and gerrymandering in Texas, you know that they both can make their way to the Supreme Court, and they would have to decide: okay, are we going to um, do away with gerrymandering, or are we going to allow it? You know? Well, the one argument in favor of what you're saying, Jeremiah is that if, if only Republicans are aggressively gerrymandering and successfully gerrymandering, which is not the case, but it's, but it's largely the case, and it may be perceptually the case. If only Republicans are doing it and it goes to the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, who is a, a partisan Republican right-wing crazy, you know, beyond even Scalia, and John Roberts, of course, you know, a total uh, corporate Republican toady, uh, they're going to simply say, Gerrymandering is just fine. It's helping the Republicans. We're, we're not going to stop it. But if Democrats were successful in gerrymandering in a way that a state where the majority of the votes actually went Republicans for Republicans uh, instead had a larger set of Democrats in their congressional delegation as, you know, the reverse of that is the actual case in places like or something close to the reverse of that is the actual case in places like Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, where, where uh, the vote is roughly 50-50, but the, the uh, representation in Congress is more like seven to four, you know, in favor of Republicans um, in Pennsylvania, as I recall. And if, if that were to happen, if it looked like the Democrats were doing it successfully, then I think that the partisans on the Supreme Court might be more inclined to say, eh, screw it, we'll throw the whole thing out and let's have the whole country do it the way California does. But there's also the problem of the Democratic Party on the one hand saying we want clean government, we want we want to do away with gerrymandering, we want honest lines drawn so that we have true representation in Congress, and then on the other hand saying, hey, we can gerrymander, let's do it. So you know, there's kind of a moral issue and a political issue. But I get what you're saying, Jeremiah, and it's well, a right. it's a it's a, a fascinating one. We'll see how this plays out. Thanks for the call, uh, Evan in Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, Evan, what's on your mind today? Hi, Stephen. Yeah, I was wanting to talk Steven, to you I'm about uh, voter like uh, registration in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just interesting because I was listening to your show and you were talking about uh, <clears throat> the possibility that Russians could have actually hacked the actual voting machines. And uh, I never hear anything on this type of show about like what happened in California with the millions of uh, illegal immigrants there <clears throat> who actually have incentive to go and illegally vote. And how uh, 
easy it is to get voter registration in that state. Yeah. You know how easy it is to walk into a store, Evan? Or Stephen, excuse me? You say what? You know how easy it is to walk into a store? I do. You ever been inclined to take something from that store, stick it in your pocket, and walk out without paying for it? Uh, not personally, no. But Why not? I think it would be easy to do so, for sure. Yeah, but, but most of us don't because we don't want to go to jail. It's the same That's reason right. why people who are not documented citizens don't vote in U.S. elections, because you can go to jail for two to five years, depending on the state. Nobody is illegally state. voting. It ain't they happening, Evan. Uh, don't even try it. David in Morristown, Florida. Hey, Maura, uh, David, what's on your mind? Hey, if we want to cure voting, what we need to do is make it a national holiday. I agree. Fourth of July. Make make let everybody I can see. Okay, if you're in jail, then maybe you shouldn't be able to vote. But once you get out, you paid your dues. If you're walking the streets, you need to be able to vote. I agree. And that's what I think they're afraid of. I think everybody and their vote. Do away with the electoral college. Yep. The last two Republican presidents were there. By, by crook. Yeah, they did not. They did not win the uh, the majority vote. George W. Bush and, and Donald Trump both lost. They're both popular vote losers. I live here in Florida. I heard Al Gore say on Bill Maher the other day that he won Florida. He knew he won Florida. Oh, he did. Do you think if it would have been turned around, and George Bush would have been president, and even on January or February, whenever it was figured out. They wouldn't have marched his ass right out of the White House. Excuse my language. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you, you may well be right, David. And in, I would encourage you to go back and look at the Supreme Court case, Bush v. Gore. When George Bush, when his lawyers sued Al Gore to stop the recount in Florida that the Florida Supreme Court had ordered, which would have turned the vote over to Al Gore, by the way, because a year later, you know, this consortium of newspapers, the New York Times, the Associated Press, USA Today and uh, I think Newsweek, uh, they actually had a, you know, a couple of trailer tractors full of every single ballot from Florida, took them up to New York and spent a year counting them. It was published in November of 2001 in the New York Times and USA Today and others. And they found that that had every vote actually been counted, Al Gore would have easily walked away with the state of Florida by any measure, by any measure. So, uh, Go ahead. Didn't the Supreme Court say it would do irreparable harm? Yes, that, in fact, that's campaign. where I was going with that thought, David. I'm sorry, I got derailed. And that, and that, if you read Bush v. Gore, the charge, the reason why they sued was they said that if the count, if the ballot is actually counted in Florida, counting the votes will cause irreparable harm to plaintiff George W. Bush. Nobody considered the irreparable harm to to defendant Al Gore, right? It was all about the end and the Supreme Court, you know, uh, William Rehnquist uh, writing for the majority in the Supreme Court said, yes, we agree that if the vote is counted in Florida, it will cause irreparable harm to George W. Bush. And it sure as heck would have. David, thank you for the call. Laura in Chicago. Hey, Laura, what's on your mind? Yeah, uh, Tom, thank you for being so clear today on your show about the long history of significant election fraud in many states and localities in this country. Um, and there's, uh, on our web, on our Facebook page, Clean Count Cook County, we have a resource for people because we recommend that citizens gather in their counties, in their election jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. That's where you can really get um, where you can really push for a change in the election uh, mechanics, you know, the mm-hmm. actual machines and things. Right. And I've, um, that, that resource, which is on the top post of Clean Count Cook County, walks everybody through. What machines do you have? What are your audits like? Are your audits adequate? There's all sorts of links for people to follow, plus That's- a lot. Um, at least two very significant background, um, Code Red, a book written by Jonathan Simon on this subject. He's a Harvard statistician. And then Democracy Lost, the documentation of the, um, the fraud against Bernie in the Democratic um, right. primaries. So, it, Laura, really is this, you, you said clean, clean election Cook County dot something? Nope. It is clean count Cook County, what we want. 
a okay. clean count in Cook County. Is that County. a Facebook page? Yes, yeah, a Facebook page. I see. Okay, okay got it. We're getting up a website. We're yeah. getting up a website. Uh, we're in the middle of the process of that. Okay. So there's this top post, and it walks people through. And that is where you really have a lot of power, at the local level. And most counties are deciding their state laws that uh, are that involve, you know, elections. Um, but they usually just give guidelines. And then the counties are actually deciding what machines they're buying and, and their processes. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, clean count, Cook County, over on Facebook. Laura, thank you. And, and good on you for your activism. Thank you for the call. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.